We've all been there. You're standing in a museum, staring at a painting, and all you can think is, I don't get it. To me, knowing the story behind an artwork is a huge part of knowing how to look at it. I'm Amanda, the host of the Art of History podcast, where we view history through the lens of some really great works of art. Each episode, we dive deep into the bigger picture behind some familiar and maybe not so familiar pieces. Check out Art of History now wherever you get your podcasts. Soundington Media! Hey Brian, let's pretend you're going to space and you can bring a musical instrument with you. What musical instrument would you choose? Glockenspiel! Why? Because it's the funniest sounding one. (laughs) How about you? Um, I'd probably bring my bongos because I like playing them. I think I know why you're asking. You know it. This week we have a really special episode of Reach, a space podcast for kids, because we'll be speaking with Colonel Chris Hadfield, best-selling author, retired astronaut, the first Canadian to walk in space, and someone who has some pretty cool stories about playing the guitar from the International Space Station. Then we'll catch up with a super cool friend of ours who just happens to be one of Jupiter's moons. What? I'm Meredith Stepien. And I'm Brian Holden. And this is Reach, a space podcast for kids. Welcome to another edition of Reach, a space podcast for kids. Each week on Reach, and in our Reaching Out minisodes, we're always excited to connect with our listener community to learn more about the big questions in space and science. And this week, we were curious about what our listeners might take to space if they one day were able to fly to the stars. So we reached out to our listeners and asked, if you could take a musical instrument to space, which musical instrument would you choose and why? If I had to take an instrument into space with me, I would take my clarinet to play and impress the aliens. I like that answer, so I would take a trumpet to play with you to impress the aliens. Wow, those were such great answers. Can you imagine having a trumpet in space? I don't think it's ever been done before. Well, in this week's episode of Reach, we were thrilled to sit down with Colonel Chris Hadfield, retired astronaut and the first Canadian to walk in space. He's also a best-selling author of some amazing books like The Darkest Dark and The Apollo Murders. And just a side note, so many people at the Adler Planetarium, where I work, are huge Chris Hadfield fans, so they're really excited. Well, there you go. I was really excited to speak with Colonel Hadfield, and he told us all about living and working aboard the International Space Station working in mission control, how to play the guitar and sing in orbit, and even what it's like to walk in space. Colonel Chris Hadfield, welcome to Reach. It's a true honor to have you with us here on the podcast. I've got a good idea of who you are, but for anyone who is joining us, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. My name's Chris Hadfield. I've been married since I was 20 years old. Uh, My wife and I have three children. I've flown in space three times and commanded a spaceship, and uh, I did Canada's first spacewalks. And I'm an engineer, and uh, I I served in the military for 25 years. I was a Cold War combat pilot, and then I was a test pilot with the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy as a Canadian. I was NASA's director in Russia, and I'm an author. I've written four books. I'm writing my fifth. 
They've all been international bestsellers, including my new one, a fiction book, which has been a lot of fun to write as well. So, so I'm all of those things, and I'm delighted to be talking to you today, Brian. Hey, thank you very much. Yes, I appreciate that. You mentioned that you've been in space three times, and on your trip that you did from December 2012 to May 2013, that was five months that you spent as the first Canadian commander of the ISS. Yeah, the only Canadian to ever command a spaceship. Well, what was that experience like? What do you remember most about that time? Well, it was uh, 16 hours a day, seven days a week for five months, uh, running about 200 experiments, um, some of them mounted on the outside of the ship, some of them inside, some of them biological, observing the world. So extremely busy just from a scientific research point of view. And then it's a big, complicated ship. It's the biggest thing humanity's ever built off-world. So it's tremendous fun. You go around the world 16 times a day. So it's magical. And you're weightless the whole time. So that combination of weightlessness, of seeing the entire world 16 times a day, crossing Canada in 10 minutes from, from coast to coast, and then doing something really hard and doing it well as a result of a lifetime of work, it's it's. It's a, a wonderful human experience, and uh, I count myself very lucky to have had a chance to uh, to make that my third space flight. Now, you mentioned orbiting the Earth 16 times a day, and I think during your, your three separate trips, you must have done this thousands of times. And in 2001, you were also the first Canadian to walk in space when you installed the Canadarm2 on the ISS. So what was it like to do those spacewalks for the very first time. Brian, spacewalks are the coolest thing ever. <laughs> they're, if you get a chance to do a spacewalk, do a spacewalk. They're just so otherworldly. The big difference is, well, it's sort of like if you're in a skyscraper in a tall building somewhere and you're sitting inside, you know, there's the double pane window or whatever there, and you know you're up high, but you don't really get any visceral sense of it. But if you imagine if you're hanging on the outside of that same double pane piece of glass, it's a whole different experience. And mm. it's similar on board a spaceship to be inside that's somehow comforting and secure, even though it's neither really. But to then put on a cloth spacesuit, pressurize it slightly, and then open a hatch and pull yourself out into the universe is wildly different. And when you're out there, you are gobsmacked by the reality of, of what has just changed. The entire world is this bulging textural kaleidoscope of color next to you turning silently and and you are separate from it you, there's no real kinship with it it's a, it's a planet in the distance and you are surrounded by the eternal three dimensions of the universe itself out in the blackness where the sun is just hanging in the distance like a light bulb in an auditorium or something it's it's phenomenal as a place to be and a wonderful way to try and truly appreciate the the rarity of the Earth and our and our place in the universe, as well as to build Canada Arm Two under the space station. <laughs> wow! I think I'm going to have to pause here for a moment while my brain reconstructs itself after that description. Um, you know, we've been lucky enough to talk to some astronauts, and I don't think anyone has ever described it quite like that. I really, really appreciate that. No word yet on if I'm going to get the chance to do a spacewalk myself. I would do it if I could. I know that my wife, who also hosts this podcast with me, Meredith, she would not. She's very scared of space, even though she loves space. But I, I would do it, just for the record, putting that out there for our listeners. You also served as NASA's chief Capcom for 25 space shuttle missions. 
So for our listeners who may not know, could you explain what a Capcom is and what it's like to work in mission control? Yeah, while you're in space, you need somebody on Earth you can trust, you know, because you're out there and you don't have time to fight all the battles or to do all the background work or everything. So you really want some trusted agent, trusted voice back on the world. And the old spaceships were shaped like little uh, candy kisses. You know, they were sort of pointy at one end Mm -hmm. and flat on the bottom. And they called them capsules. I'm not really sure why, because capsules aren't shaped that way. But they they were called capsules. And so the person that communicated with the capsule was the capsule communicator, clever NASA naming. And so they (laughs) shortened that to from capsule communicator to Capcom because it was easier to say on the radio. And even though we haven't flown in capsules for ever, uh, we still stick the name Capcom. Although the the new vehicles are more like capsules. And so I was the trusted agent of the crew on the ground, basically the spokesman for Earth for 25 shuttle flights in a row. The beauty of it is you train for every flight. You became intimately familiar with every bit of the technical details and the necessities of the crew for 25 shuttle flights in a row. Huge personal individual contribution to each. So that's a wonderful thing to do. The other is you're sitting in the front room of mission control. And each of those consoles, you know, those desks that are lined up one behind the other there, that's the front person for an entire back room of dozens of people who are watching all the data, the information, and then feeding the most pertinent bits of it to the front room to mission control. And you are sort of in in the, the quarterback huddle of all of that, sitting next to the flight director who's in charge of the whole thing. So tremendous responsibility, but a great joy. And uh, I... I contributed to several Hubble flights and saved some serious problems. And we mapped the entire world in 12 days on STS-99 with a radar mapper that had never happened before in human history. I mean, Magellan, it took him three years just to get around the world once, and almost everybody in his crew died, and they lost four out of five ships. We mapped the entire world in in 10 days, you know, and um, that type of thing is possible with a spaceship, and it's enabled by mission control. So to have been the Capcom for those 25 shuttle flights, starting to build the space station and everything, was a magnificent slice of life. Several years worth of work, all hours, messed up all my holidays and everything, but uh, <laughs> but I'd do it again in a heartbeat. A great, great, interesting work in the exploration of everything else. So did you, were you the Capcom before or after your own space flights? And if it was before, how do you think that affected the way that you traveled in space? You normally want a Capcom to have already flown in space so that they can speak authoritatively in the room for what the astronauts are really thinking and doing and worrying about and paying attention to. My first space flight was in 1995, and I was a Capcom from 96 to 2000, um, about four and a half years worth. I was greatly aided by my first space flight. And then being a Capcom greatly aided me for my subsequent space flights, just because I had a lot better understanding of all of the mechanisms that are actually happening to uh, to make a space flight work. So, so yeah, it was great training for me, as well as uh, just uh, a great opportunity to directly support all of those missions. That is amazing. Maybe if your wife is afraid of spacewalking, maybe she could be a Capcom because it's a really good intellectual. It's like a constant whodunit as something fails and all you have are some weird symptoms and it's up to you and this team of experts to constantly figure out and then come up with a plan and then make that plan happen. It's it's a fascinating job. Meredith may like that. I, I'm going to bring that up to her because I think that that may, that may be the middle ground we find with her uh, when it comes to getting it. You know, we're just waiting for the podcast to get big enough to where somebody offers to fly us up there. You know what I mean? 
So, Chris, I think I first learned about you a few years ago because of a music video that you put out, Space Oddity, which I'm sure you talk about all the time, but it's got to be the most famous cover of uh, Space Oddity of all time. Uh, It's a music video you shot from the International Space Station, and I was wondering if you could talk about what it was like to play the guitar in space. Yeah, I think I, I may even be wrong. I don't know. But my, my son helped me with that video. Uh, he did the editing of all the raw video clips that I sent down. And uh, just where he posted it to the Internet, it's been seen you know over 50 million times, but yeah. it's been rebroadcast hundreds and hundreds of millions of times in lots of other venues. So so, yeah, hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people have seen that video. Yeah. And so I think it's more than. Uh, more than Bowie's videos of that song. But but the beauty of it is Bowie loved that version that I did. He always wanted to fly in space. And I got to know David Bowie just a tiny bit. And he was funny and witty and acerbic and 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 so sharp and so interested and so uh so aware. Uh so it was a real delight that he got to see that song performed there. Um, but it's a tough place to play guitar on a spaceship. One, because it's noisy. It's it's sort of like mm. next time you're riding in the back of a bus, just listen to the ambient noise level. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what it's like on a spaceship because you're inside the machine that keeps you alive. Yeah. You're living in the boiler room of the building. So it's hard place to play just because it's noisy. Mm-hmm. You're also weightless. Yeah. So there's nothing to hold the guitar in place. And if you just move your hand up the neck, then just that tiny friction of your fingers, the guitar is just going to take off, you know, in the opposite direction. And the whole guitar won't stay in front of you for you to pick or strum. So you need to find a way to pinch or hold the guitar in front of you. And then for your vocals as well, there's no gravity pushing the fluid out of your sinuses and your head uh, down towards your feet. There's nothing pushing down on your diaphragm to naturally expand, you know, the, the cavity inside your abdomen. And so it's hard to get hard to sing well up there. You don't get a full breath and your head is always congested. So, so it, it, I had to sort of relearn both. Uh, I've always been a musician, but I had to relearn uh, how to properly fret and, and play and, and try and keep it clean. And then also find a way to, uh, to sing even, even given the bizarre circumstances. If you ever want to know what it's like, Brian, here's what I suggest you do. Get your guitar, get it close to the wall, stand on your head, leaning okay. against the wall. And maybe stand on your head for about three hours without a break. <laughs> and after you've been on your head for three hours, then while you're upside down, play and sing a song. Pick up the guitar off the ground while you're upside down and then try and play while you're upside down. And after you've been upside down for three hours, it's sort of like that. It's that weird. You can do it, but it's it's not normal. You know what? I'm going to do it right now. Do you have three hours? <laughs> I need you to coach me through this. I'm going to get upside down in the booth. Grab my guitar, which I haven't played in two years, I think. Ah. For me, playing the guitar is going to be tough no matter what. But <laughs> I'll, I'll try it upside down for three hours one time. Um, let's talk about your book. You mentioned you have a new book out. It's called The Apollo Murders. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. It's a thriller fiction, and it's alternative history. Uh, it's set at the end of the of the moonshot era, at the end of the Apollo era, and it follow and, and it's almost entirely true. Even though it's a thriller fiction book, almost everything that happens in the book really happened. And I've wow. twisted my plot in amongst all of those real life events. And over half the characters in the book are real people, so that it makes it a really intriguing book to read because what's real and what isn't 
but uh, I've had enough fun and success so far that I'm I'm currently writing the next book in the series also. Oh, wow. I, I mean, I imagine you're probably going to be getting a lot of questions about like, so what what is all the real stuff? And like, do you have you broken that down? Is that an appendix in the back of the book? Like, this is real. This is real. This is real. I called it author's notes. And when you okay, get to yeah. the end, just to save everybody Googling, uh, I put in <laughs> and not everything that's real in the book, but sort of the, the high points of mm-hmm. which characters were real and which events and, and things were real so that people don't need to uh, just, you know, guess. But right at the very beginning of the book, even before, what page is it numbered? Let me just see. It is, it's not even a numbered page, but it says, many of these people are real. Much of this actually happened. Wow. And that's, that's the truth. It's, uh, it's so deeply grounded in reality. And I'm in an absolutely unique position as a, as a fiction author in that I have done spacewalks and commanded a spaceship and flown three rocket ships. So for most of the the research for it. I, I I knew the things because there are things that I've done in my life. And and I, I know all the other astronauts and cosmonauts in the world. So if I did have a question I couldn't answer, I could just call one of the moonwalkers. So uh, anyway, pretty lucky. And I'm really delighted that people are loving the Apollo murders. Yes. Yes. I can't wait to read it. I also want to ask you, we, we read, uh, our team read The Darkest Dark, which is your children's book. And this was uh, such a, a really sweet story. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about it and maybe why it's important for young learners to kind of stay curious. Sure. When, when I was little, when, when everybody's little, you're afraid. Mm-hmm. That's normal because you don't know very much yet. And so everything's kind of daunting and you're small. So everything else is bigger than you. And uh, you don't have any skills yet. I mean, you don't even know how to ride a bike yet. And, and so even riding a bike is still scary because you don't know how to do it. But, you know, I've learned not only to ride a bike, but how to fly rocket ships and, and, and test airplanes. So I thought it would be useful for young people to realize that it's okay to be afraid. But the real secret of life is how do you learn how not to be afraid? How do you learn? How do you find bravery? How do you learn how to be brave? What do you base your bravery on? And not just bravado, but you know, how how is it that you can build a life? And I thought the book would be far more compelling if it wasn't just, you know, boopsie goes to the moon, but mm-hmm. actually based on real human events. And so it's it's largely autobiographical. And and so it's written for a four-year-old or a five-year-old. But when you get to the end of the book, much as I did in the Apollo murders, I put in uh, an afterword. So that when you're, you know, six or seven or eight, you can read that section and see just how closely tied this is to a real person mm-hmm. and how the story of the of the darkest dark is my own story. And and the ideas of it enabled me to do the things that that seem like scary dreams when you're a little kid. So, you know, my adult books have been written for for a purpose, you know, to try and give people ideas or or thoughts or or insights. But even though you're four or five, that doesn't mean you don't need those exact same things. You just need them in a different format. And so that was the purpose of The Darkest Dark. It really is. It's a nice story. I I really enjoyed reading through that. And it's beautifully illustrated as well. It is. The Fan Brothers who illustrated it, they just won a national award uh, for their latest book. Um, They're they're superb. And uh, we sort of helped discover them and, and got them out there. Uh, and they they just did tremendous work on the darkest dark, and it's yeah. lovely to see them winning awards for their for both their artwork and their storytelling. Now the the Fan Brothers, Eric and Terry Fan, 
and they brought their third brother in now, I think, as a as a story writer. So, nice. so they're a, they're a really nice nice uh, group of people to work with. That's wonderful. Well, I have one more question for you, Colonel. Um, over the years, your missions, your message has been a source of inspiration for, as we've said, millions and millions of people. I was wondering if you could share for our listeners, our young listeners, any advice that you might have if they're trying to pursue a career in space or in science, uh, what might you say to them? Sure. The first thing is uh, you get one body in your life. And so take care of it. And you don't have to be some sort of fanatic, but think about what you eat. You actually get to choose the food that you put in your mouth. So be deliberate about it. Try and eat stuff that's good for your body. And, you know, don't become crazy about it, but, but just consciously think about what you're eating and then get a little bit of exercise every day. You don't have to live in a gymnasium or something, but take the stairs and carry your bag and, and you know, walk and run and just get some time physical every day. So that's number one. The second is always be a, a curious student your entire life. Try and understand how the things around you work. And, and don't just be curious. Don't just go, huh, wonder how that works. It's, you know, everyone's got access now that, that can watch this podcast or listen to it. Everyone has access basically to the combined knowledge of the world. Mm -hmm. So there is no reason to remain ignorant, you know, <laughs> actually find the source and learn how things work. So don't just be a curious person, but be a person who finds out the answers through your whole life. And then the third thing is learn how to make decisions and stick with them. And so start small, you know, like, like say this week, you know, whatever day it is today, for the next six or seven days, I'm going to, and then choose something. I'm going to do 50 push-ups a day, or I'm going to learn five words of I don't know, Japanese every day or whatever language you don't speak. By the end of a week, you will have changed who you are. And if you do it for a month, you'll be able to see the changes or feel the changes in yourself. And, and it's really important to learn that your decisions can deliberately change who you are because that's how you turn yourself into who you want to be. And so learn how to make decisions and stick with them. And it's a skill, just like anything else. It's like learning how to juggle or, or, or how to ride a bike. It's just a skill. So learn how to do that and make it part of your life. Learn how to make decisions and stick with them. So those are my three big recommendations, no matter what you want to do in life. Think about your body and take care of it. Be curious, but always make the answers part of who you are. And then learn how to make decisions and stick with them. And that'll help you fly in space or, or uh, hopefully do whatever it is you dream of. That's really, really beautiful. Colonel Chris Hadfield, it has been a genuine honor uh, speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us on Reach. A real pleasure to speak with you today, Brian, and everybody who's listening to Reach. And, and maybe one other thing, and that is sure. your life is not what you set out to do. You know, your life isn't what you told people you were going to do. Hmm. Your life is actually just the total of all of the tiny little things that you chose to do next. That's all it is. What did you choose to do next? And you probably chose a hundred things today to do next or a thousand things. And that defined who you are right now. So be deliberate in choosing what you're going to do next. Think about it. What should I do next? What book should I read? What show should I watch? What, ex what should I do next? Because all those little incremental decisions, they turn you into who you are and they shape all the possibilities that are coming in your life. So really think about it 
and and always be curious. And I'm going to be delighted to find out what everybody does next. I think that that is great advice, no matter what age our listeners are. Once again, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, Brian. Nice to speak with you. Nice to speak with you too. You know, Brian, hearing Colonel Hadfield's description of what it's like to walk in space and to see the Earth and Sun from orbit made me start to wonder about the other planets and moons in our solar system and what they're up to these days. Well, should we check in with one of them? Yes. All right. This week, we were really lucky to get a visit from one of our very favorite icy neighbors on this week's edition of Did You Know? Let's give a big reach welcome to our coolest friend in the solar system, Europa. Hey, Jupiter, is it okay if we, uh... You know, maybe just turn up the heat a little bit there. <laughs> oh, hey, Brian and Meredith, thanks so much for having me. Hey, did you know that I'm the sixth largest moon in your solar system and Jupiter's fourth largest satellite? <laughs> I, I'm working on becoming number one. <laughs> oh, so my name is Europa, and that comes from the princess in Greek mythology, who also just so happens to be the namesake for the continent of Europe. That's great to know, Europa. I, you know, I asked, I, I said, Jupiter, what? what's a Europe? It sounds fun. <laughs> Did you know that I am believed to have almost twice as much water as the planet Earth, but because of my freezing temperatures, any water on my surface is surely ice. But you know what? It makes for a great ice skating rink, and it also makes for some really nice iced tea. Mm-mm. <laughs> You know, uh, but also that said, scientists have found strong evidence that beneath my icy surface is an ocean of liquid water, making me one of the most promising places in your solar system suitable for some form of life. And I can tell you, I do feel something bubbling under there, but I don't know if it's life or just gas. But you know what? I heard you're coming to visit because I heard NASA is currently building an orbiter spacecraft that will conduct a detailed study of me. It is called the Europa Clipper Mission, and it is targeted to launch in 2024. Wow! Uh, you know, Jupiter does years a little differently, so I'm not sure if that's close or far away, but you know what? Come visit as soon as you can, and please bring heaters. <laughs> please bring heaters. We can't wait for the Europa Clipper Mission and to learn even more about you. So what are your favorite things about being Europa? Hmm, what's my favorite thing about being Europa? Hmm, well, I'd say all the secrets I keep. <laughs> when you come visit, I'll definitely give you a few little secrets, but I'm going to keep a few to myself. I also really love orbiting. You know, I try my best to stay in a perfect circle around Jupiter just because why not? Let's see if I can do it. Maybe one day it'll be a perfect perfect circle. <laughs> we'll see. Hey, thanks so much, Europa, for joining us this week on Did You Know? No, thank you, Brian and Meredith. This has been so lovely. I feel like I don't get to talk to a lot of people all the time, so this was great. Warmed me up. <laughs> all right, we'll see you later. Hey, Jupiter, can we at least just like one degree up? Just one degree up? What an incredible conversation with Colonel Chris Hadfield, best-selling author and the first Canadian to walk in space. Wow, that was so cool, Brian. Yeah, you know, what I really liked is that he didn't downplay how cool spacewalks are. 
Yeah, for real. And I and I like the way he talked about how when you're in space, you need somebody on Earth you can trust. I would hope that, you know, if we were in space, Bri, that we could communicate with our dog, Luna, someone that we trust so much. Well, you don't want to go to space, so you could be yeah. on Earth and I'll be in space. With Luna? Luna definitely Stay. should be in space, okay. for sure. There, there's no better addition to the International Space Station than a dog that is completely uncontrollable. Yeah, she's been in and out of this booth the entire time we've been recording. And I have a question for our listeners out there. Do you have a science or space-related question? We'd love to hear from you. Just get your parents' permission and give us a call at 312-248-3402. Leave us a message with your first name, where you're from, and your question for a chance to be featured in an upcoming episode. You can also send questions via email to reachthepodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to acknowledge that not everyone has access to computers or the internet. And if you're not able to get online, many local libraries offer publicly available internet access. Thanks for joining us on Reach, a space podcast for kids. We're your hosts, Brian Holden. And Meredith Stepien. This episode of Reach was written by Sandy Marshall with Nate DeFort, Meredith Stepien, and Brian Holden. Reach is produced by Nate DeFort and Sandy Marshall, who's a solar system ambassador for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and edited by Nate DeFort. Our theme song and additional music was composed by Jesse Case. And our logo was created by Stephen Lyons. We'd like to offer a very special thanks to Colonel Chris Hadfield for joining us on Reach. To purchase a copy of The Apollo Murders and The Darkest Dark, visit chrishadfield.ca slash books. You can also follow Colonel Hadfield on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Check our show notes for links to each of these platforms or visit chrishadfield.ca. And to check out his incredible music video from space, visit the link in our show notes. Europa was voiced by the great Kevin Vidal. You can catch Kevin on Working Moms, Strays, and Odd Squad the movie. And you can follow Kevin on Instagram and Twitter via at NotKevinVidal. We'd also like to offer a special thanks to Shannon Abbott, Cheryl Ann Horrocks, Ashley Como, and Janet Davidson Marshall. And as always, a big thanks to the Reach Learning Community for the amazing contributions they gave us. Way to go! Hey, Brian, did you know that Neptune's moon Triton is the coldest known object in the solar system with an average surface temperature of negative 391 degrees Fahrenheit? That is so cold. Do you think the weather report is just like, hey, everybody on Triton, just stay inside like always. Don't even try it. Totally. Today's weather report, bundle up, folks. It's looking like it's going to be another chilly day at minus 391. And in a way, it's kind of like an easy job being the living person. If you're enjoying Reach, be sure to tell your friends and leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice. Or share an episode on social media. And if you'd like to find us online, visit at Reach the Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, or visit our website at reachthepodcast.com. Reach is a production of Soundsington Media committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to soundsingtonmedia.com. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.